seek above all for a game worth playing. this episode of Make Yoga Magic Again, the House of Mages podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arulian Cumming. The House of Mages is an online school of yoga, tantra, and the magical arts. We run yoga teacher training and have a membership platform that gives you access to an extensive curriculum in developing your magical abilities with some of the best teachers in the world on various esoteric arts. In this episode, I chat with embodied speaking coach TEDx presenter and tantric yogi Miroslav Petrovich. Miroslav believes being in connection with our own personal presence can be the most important dynamic relationship we have in life. This at its core is the power of presence. He is inspired by embodied speaking, teaching and training to face the fears that most often hold us back from our greatest lives. He teaches that when we conquer the fear and limiting beliefs that hold us back, we can use them as tools to reach our fullest potential. His message and off-the-beaten-path approach speaks to thought leaders, future visionaries, progressive educators, and transformational leaders who are empowered to move away from traditional teaching methodologies and embrace a deeper, more conscious way of communicating and teaching through mind, body, and spirit. I first connected with Miroslav when I decided to start building the House of Mages. I'd only told a few people about it and one of them said, there's someone you really need to chat to. That person was Miroslav and after chatting to him for an hour about everything from classical Tantra and how to affect the energy of a room to Merlin and the myth of Excalibur, I knew he was exactly the man I was looking for. Miroslav is a rare gem. He's delved deeply into classical tantric yoga, both as a practitioner and a teacher, as well as modern neo-tantric practices, providing a much-needed bridge between the two. I've also experienced firsthand Miroslav's unique way of teaching us to speak from our body and use our senses in a way that connects us intimately to our audience, developing a way of showing up that embraces all parts of us and gives permission to those you touch with your own words to do the same. I'm really looking forward to sharing this one with you. So without further ado, Metafear Mage and wielder of the legendary microphone in the stone, Miroslav Petrovich. So welcome everybody to this episode of House of Mages. So it was about a few months ago I got connected with uh, Miroslav Petrovich and it was in regards to originally talking about House of Mages but then we got talking about magic, uh, everything from uh, Camelot and Lady of the Lake to uh, traditional yogic practices and Tantra. And then I actually found out that he had a pretty amazing embodied speaker course. And it's something that I've really been wanting to focus on and, and just evolving my skill set in. 
so yeah, I've been doing that for the last six weeks and just completed it. And it was such an amazing course that I really wanted to have a chat to him about it and actually get it on House of Majors as well. So you can all take part. So I'd love to introduce, uh, we're trying to work out what kind of mage you might be. So we're thinking of transmission maze or message maze or um, yeah, just, I guess the power of voice can do so much and change uh, so much external and internal. So I think it's probably one of the most powerful mage types around. So yeah, Eriksal <laughs> Petrovich, thank you brother for being here today. Mm, thank you, bro. Thank you for the beautiful introduction. Um, it's a pleasure, honor, and it, like a part of me, I have just, I just have so much love for you. Um, that yeah, it's just, it's just a joy of being in, in conversation with you. So curious yeah. to see where this takes us today. Yeah, we were having a good chat, uh, catch up before this podcast, and we we're realizing that we need to start recording because we're missing all the, <laughs> the good content. So I, I guess I want to start, brother, with um. I guess because you are really focusing now on helping people to embody what they do in a way that how they communicate it. And I think that's the biggest piece because we were talking about as well that a lot of the people who are wanting to do this course with you uh, are ones that have a modality or have uh, a craft or, or something that they've been focusing all, all this time, but they don't know how to communicate it. And that's, and that's the part, how, how do we, how do we teach this thing that we've been learning? Because you know, it's easy for me to, um, you know, think of a rune or think of a concept and, and I get that, gener- that that feeling in my body, but how do I communicate that? And um, we were talking about that that's, that's a whole science and art in itself, isn't it? Pedagogy? Mm. Yeah, pedagogy. So in, in edu- I'll, maybe I'll give a brief just overview, me and my background, because um, some of your listeners may not know me. So uh, over the last, I don't know, I've been teaching, speaking, facilitating for just over 10 years now. Um, and that's included like doing TED Talks, going on global stages. Um, right here, last year I was at Monash University writing a thesis on embodied teaching and learning. So I've really journeyed both on the Wu side. I've kind of explored everything that's possible to drop into deeper fields of transmission, but then also looking at the logical side of um, how do we communicate this in words that are going to be applicable to, let's say, more mainstream people, more people that want something tangible. Um and to put it all into context, it's like, even though I've been on these stages and I've done a lot of this work, I came from a background of most people, if they saw me in primary, high school, um, even about uni days, I started coming out of this, but they probably would have thought I was mute. I hardly used to speak, hardly used to talk. People used to ask my friends, um, does he ever smile? Does, does he ever speak? Like they, they would stand next to us and ask my friends because they would assume I don't actually speak. So... And, and the more I dropped into my own, um, my own path and my own spirituality, if you want to call it that, uh, the more the stage and teaching and speaking started drawing me forwards. And I, I look back on that now and I'm like, oh, all those years of quiet, quietness perhaps allowed me to, to become aware of certain things that um, you don't really learn in places like schools. Um, so I want to set that as a bit of weight to where I'm coming from in my journey to, to getting here. And then, then also to answer your question. So Dan and I was speaking around, um, when, when we study things like yoga teaching, for example, as well, I'll use that as an example, but it applies to everything. We often get taught the, the content, which is the yoga postures, the anatomy, the mantras, you know, a bit of the philosophy, but no one really teaches you the context of how, how do you teach? What's the art and the science of teaching? Which in academic language is pedagogy. Um, 
but even like when when you study education and I have a degree in teaching, it's like there's only so much that's given to pedagogy. Whereas for me, pedagogy is literally the path of of the teacher, of the facilitator, of the magician if you are working with other people. Mm. And then how, how do we cultivate that within ourselves to be able to bring the magic into other people's lives? Definitely. And, and another thing that we touched on earlier is the why. So, you know, we, we learn mantra and we learn asana and we learn all the different things in the yogi practice, but they often show the external, you know, expression of that. And we were talking earlier how, you know, there's the intention behind it and then there's the concept that evolves and the expression of it that comes through. And so a lot of the time we're, we're told to do all these practices, but we're not really told why. And if you trace the root back why, that's when we can start to play with it as well. Yeah, I, I really like that. Um, for me, essentially, everything has to come back to aliveness. And as one of my spiritual teachers um, used to say, unless there's aliveness in, in your practice, don't do it. Like if you'd rather be doing something else than meditating, then go do that other thing. But, you know, when, when the seat draws you and when there's aliveness in the practice, that's when you want to be on the seat. Yeah. So do you feel like, because um, you were talking about how you've kind of slowly grown and changed over the years, um, like in line with that spiritual practice as well, was there a real like aha moment when you realized that this had like such a profound effect on you or that had the potential to have such a profound effect on you? And yeah, were there little shifts in your belief system that like, because that's the thing I think as well, that people often need that shift in belief that this will actually do something for them or that it is doing something for them before it can actually have that benefit. Yeah. There's two things that come to mind, and I don't know if this answers your question, but I'm going to go with it. Um, when I was just reading and getting interested in this stuff, uh, a friend of mine went and had an experience with some guy, and then like, mom, I tried connecting with this guy because I was like, I want to have an experience. Like, I want to start experiencing this stuff I've been reading about. And it, his experience was pretty profound. This was a very logical guy, not very um, into too much spiritual practice. But he went to the ceremony and this energy started moving through him and got stuck at his throat. And I think maybe after that, he started crying as well. So it's like his experience and how I knew him. I was like, wow, this is crazy. And if this worked for him, I hope it can work for me. Anyway, the, the teacher he spent some time with um, was offering a traditional tantra yoga teacher training. And a part of me was like, can I come along to this? Because I'm not even a practitioner. How can I start a teacher training? And he was like, yeah, like it was a, I don't know, three or four month training. And this is going back like over 10 years ago now when even finding Tantra online was a thing. There was like two or three people in all of Melbourne offering Tantra. It wasn't a, a common, uh, common words the way it is now. Yeah. And I remember firstly sitting in this guy's room and one of the first things he said was Tantra is about uh, building a spiritual life in a world existence or living a spiritual life in a world existence. And a part of me was like, fuck, I'm home. This is what I've been searching for. And I didn't even know it because I couldn't find it in my in, in immediate environment. And then the second piece is um, I, w I was still very shy and introverted at the time and he got everyone to pair up and do an exercise. And because I was so shy, I didn't have a partner as it usually happened. And I went up to him and he's like, you're sure you can partner with me. And he was sitting in this armchair and I was sitting um, cross-legged cross and we were doing this exercise where he asked me to teach it back to him what he taught us. And as we started to teach, he kind of, he pulled his glasses down and he looked at me and he goes, you're a teacher. And I was like, I don't know how to receive that, where that lands in me. But when he, when he said it, it's like the energy actually landed in my body. Mm. And he just acknowledged the part of me that I didn't even have 
access to. So as I said, I don't know how that answers your question, but I feel that was one of those pivotal moments where um, yeah, perhaps someone further along the path helped pave my own path for me. Definitely. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, for me as well, it's different, but I think it's taking, finding someone that you give authority to in a certain way that you respect and that you feel like is on a, on a path that you want to be in. And then, yeah, just having that acknowledgement either from them or just just even just an ex- as an example, I think that this might be possible. Um, and especially if it's quite conflicting views, because I think that's tricky because we almost need someone that's not too far, like further down the path than we are because we can't relate to it. Because I know that like before I got into this concept of magic, I was so skeptical about it. that So someone that was like way in woo-woo land I just couldn't relate to it. And I was like, they're, they're nuts. But someone who is quite grounded and like at the time when I got into it, I was like all about making money in business and sales and someone who was doing well in their life financially, like ticking all the boxes that I thought were, were good. But then yet they were into this stuff was a bridge. And I think that's that's also why it's uh, people find unique teachers unique to themselves because they have that bridge, right? It's all about creating that bridge. And I think that's, why I liked your course as well, because you did reiterate the fact that this is just a, you know, an example of this concept, but it's going to land differently with different people, depending on where they are and who you are as well. And, and really encouraging people to find their unique, you know, this is like the, this is the skeleton or the template, paint your, paint it in your own colors. And then, um, yeah, send that in that way. So did you have, you know, did that develop over time that you, or did you start teaching that way from the, from the start? Mm, that's a good question. I, I, my guess is probably early on there was, you know, it was more about teaching technique because that's all I knew. But as yeah. I started journeying this work, like I think I had such a massive appetite for aliveness that all I wanted was aliveness. And it's like I would keep finding ways to lean into the aliveness. And what that sometimes meant is, as I was teaching, I was beginning to lean into uh, discovery through the process of teaching. Like as I start leaning in and kind of listening to the things that want to come through me, I'd be like, I haven't been taught this stuff before. This isn't something that exists in a book. We're kind of, we're going off the map here in search of aliveness. So what does aliveness feel like to you? If you could describe it. Goosebumps. (laughs) Goosebumps is usually a good hit of aliveness for me. Um, a sense of when my attention and awareness is is drawn into the world, but there's also a, a quality of silence to it. It's like the mind goes quiet in reverence to what's happening in the present moment. Mm. So would you, like if, if how most people view nerves and being nervous, um, how would you relate that to aliveness? Do you think that it's connected in a similar kind of feeling? Yeah, completely. Um, within the within the TED talk, I go into that a fair bit. Uh, so for me, fear is essentially, and when I say aliveness, it's like this isn't one thing. I'm I'm kind of laying the foundation for a concept. It can show up as fear, and I think that's one of our most immediate um, access points into aliveness. And what we call fear in English is just, it's like, it's a misunderstood concept. Yes, there is fear and there is things we should be fearful of, like if a bear is chasing you, but there's also a lot of aliveness that's been stuck in what we call fear. 
especially when it comes to like social ideas of fear and breaking through uh, our habits. Is, is that making sense or do I need to kind of drive that? A bit no, more? definitely. But even, um, yeah, I guess since we're, we're both yogis, like the idea of, is it a buyer? The, like the kind of fearlessness and change. Um, that's one of the samskaras. And it's like this idea that we're actually fearing the change that it's going to create, not the mm-hmm. actual action. And so that there are like really like rational fears, like fear of heights, fear of falling, fear of loud sounds and things. But the rest is just a fear of change. So even if someone steps up and says something, they're almost afraid that one, people aren't going to like what they're going to say and, and that'll change how people perceive them, but also that they are going to like what you say and that's going to change how they perceive you. So either way, um, it's, I think it is like similar to a buyer, like it's like a fear of change. They're, they're realizing that they're about to step up and do magic and we're talking about how magic mm-hmm. is um, changing your inner and outer world or someone else's inner world as well. And that if you step up onto a stage and, you know, nothing changes within the people, then you haven't essentially really done magic. You've just kind of gone up and just said a few things and yeah. nothing's really changed. Um, and that's, that's the discomfort because that's when people start to reel in their seats when they're listening and, and you can feel the energy shifting. You're like, oh, no, this is a bad thing. I just want to, like, I should be, yeah. So I guess, like, how do you start to overcome that? Like, what, like, what is the... Uh, what is the key to um, being okay <laughs> with uh, you changing and changing other people and changing other people's perceptions of you? This is, you've opened like, I'm like, I could answer this, not, not even answer this. This conversation is like a, I don't know, a smorgasbord in front of me right now. Yeah. Um, it, uh, there's a couple of things I want to respond before I even an- answer your question. In, in the yogic mythology, especially within Tantra, you have Bhairava. And Bhairava is the raffle embodiment of Shiva, which is very much the, historically, I might get this wrong, but I'm going to give you my relationship to it. It's like fear personified and how the power of fear can be so fucking transformative when we're willing to meet it and digest it within ourselves. It's like the world in a sense, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And who we are on the other end of that is completely unknown. And that can look like tiny things. Like when I say fear, people think of, you know, running of bears or whatever. The fear can be like slowing your breath down when you're having a conversation and just noticing how it's like, oh, something different is going to happen if I let myself be different. Um, so that's one piece. And, and the second piece is like Sally Kempton has this quote, who's another great Tantra meditation teacher. She paraphrased, I'm going to paraphrase her without looking at this on my phone. So it's going to be like a massive um, jump. And might be completely wrong, but it's this idea that no, I'm, I'm not going to get it. I should have even put her name into it because I'm going to get it wrong. But it's this idea that God and fear can really be the same presence and God being absolute magic, the untapped potential of life. And for most people, when this happens, our, our natural impulse is to run as opposed to meet that. Mm-hmm. And on meeting that is where magic can happen. Um, and then on your question in regards to like, how, how do we do that? There's two things at play for me. I feel the age we're stepping into magic is going undercover and, you know, we're not wearing capes and walking around with brooms and all these kinds, kinds of things, the way we archetypically relate to magic. It's like, how can my very presence be an act of magic? And that's the part that excites me. It's like 
to people on the outside, they're just receiving the effects of this. Internally, there's like a whole universe that's spinning and weaving and dancing through the space. And that, that takes a sense of vulnerability, I would say. Especially, it's like, it's one thing to call it out and say, cool, we're going to go into a ceremony now. That almost creates a certain type of container, but it's a different experience to bring people into your world and let the magic vibrate through the space. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's reminding me of like what we were talking about earlier, the intention behind words and communication. Um, and that, yeah, in the like Indo-European view of magic and like even the world, the word um, for magic in Old Norse is galda, and that means literally to crow, but the idea of, of crowing as creating a change in the world. So you speak mm. something into existence. And that is actually like the one correlation between all magical systems as well, even, um, you know, even in like traditional Catholic grimoires, right? So like you, you invoke the power of God or the, the archangels and then you have the power of their speech, like the power of God to speak mm. into existence. And even in that, you know, the first was the word. And like, you know what I mean? There's no change without the word. And the word can be a metaphorical concept, but literally people change the word, the world with their words. Um, so, you know, essentially all the magical practices, no matter what you're doing, if you're not speaking something into existence, it's almost just you're not expressing that power. It's just useless power. Um, so, yeah, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's it's beautiful. Well, let me add some from a different concept. And I love, um, like, for me, my 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 path has very much been through yoga and tantra predominantly. So hearing this Western side of it, I'm like, this is exciting how similar they are. Um, the, the tantric word matrika, well, I think it's, it either translates to word or, or letters and it, matrika is also the same place where we get the thing matrix from. So it's literally this power of words that can create the, mm, the containers that we live in and those containers can be prisons or can be very opening and empowering. And we're doing it subconsciously all the time with the words we're creating. And sometimes we're like, words aren't that powerful, but it's like, because we can't even see the matrices we've created with the words that we speak and how we're living inside them. It's like, we, we get a bit like goldfish in water and it's only when something new comes through and starts breaking those uh, matrices down that, that, that that's where the magic opens up. Cause it's like, Oh, this power coming through that because it's opening to something else. Mm. So that's one side. And then the other side that's really stimulating in what you're saying is um, they say like mantra, which is some mantra in, in the way it's sometimes logically taught. It's like, keep repeating these words and it's going to calm your mind. But the power is not in the words. Like it's in the word, but it's deeper than the word. And they say to, to empower a mantra or, or to give it energy. Um, I've, uh, either you have to build a relationship with it yourself. Like it, it can't just be the word. You have to build a relationship with the essence that's below the word. And that's really what the practice is about. It's about invoking the essence and the magic and the power of the word. So one way is for you to do that yourself, which could take time and discipline. And you might even have to find certain mantras that, that you do have a relationship with for that to happen. I've certainly had that happen spontaneously. But then the other side is, um, mantras that are given from teachers that already have a relationship with them. So the mantra is already alive within them and they're passing that living mantra on to you. 
and then you continue to have a relationship with it. And that's, that's one of the big powers of lineage where the cultivation and the vibration of words is already living within one body and it's being passed down onto the next. Mm. And sometimes we take this into just guru kind of ideas and it's not, this is, this is the essence of teaching with everything, regardless of what we do. Like, can we convey what's the essence of what's alive inside us onto another person? And even if it has nothing to do with magic itself, like for me, I, I'm applying this in teaching and speaking. And can I give people the essence of what I'm communicating um, without getting stuck in the concept and let them take the essence in and have it vibrate through their body and maybe even come out in a different way? Mm. Yeah, so I guess it, um, it's a really interesting um, idea that we can expand on as well because I'm interested to know that your point of view of just say mantra or even just, just speaking the English language, what is your point of view on how much it innately holds as a, like a sonic sound or vibration and how much matters from the actual intention that goes into it? Because like, is it just almost like a catalyst um, that can be expressed through, through like, you know, it can amplify your intention. Um, and, and what's your point of view on that? Cause I guess it comes down to speaking as well. Cause you know, it's not often what you say, but how you say it and all those and your intention behind it. So how much do you think uh, on if they're either side of the spectrum, it's like all intention or all the actual sonic vibration behind it. Um, what's your point of view on that? If that makes sense. For me, there's a PCR around. I really like the question. The, and the middle piece for me is about alignment. Can my mind body feeling align with what I'm saying? Cause that's when the word has power. Mm. And if it's just intention, um, it can fall flat sometimes. Like that gives it a bit of juice, but it's like it has to land somewhere deeper in the body for it really to, to carry forth. Otherwise it's a bit like mental intention. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I agree. And that's what I find sometimes. I, I realize when I even say words these days, I, I'm saying it from my body rather mm. than saying it from my head. And I think that's what happens a lot of the time. And you can start to spot it sometimes that when people are talking from their head, they're just almost regurgitating information they've heard. But I think that's the first steps as well to talk about it. But you can tell someone when it's like, it almost feels like deeper, like I'm spooking, mm. like, like, uh, like Barry White or something like when I'm saying <laughs> that I really feel, cause I just feel it zoom come out. Whereas like sometimes I feel like I'm just talking, talking from my head. Cause so I guess for you, like what, how does that change? Like what are the, what's the path to, to taking something from your head, taking a word from your head and making it. So can, do you think you can take any word and put it into your body and speak it from your body? Or do you think that some people are, uh, just maybe need to find different words or different ways of, of doing things? Or is it a bit of both? This is awesome. Awesome conversation. I love this. Um, I think it can be a bit of both. And for me, the relationship is, and this is me really unveiling some of my, um, inner world and workings and how I approach this work. Um, I'll, I'll take it. Harish has this beautiful idea that uh, it's not even his idea. Harish being one of uh, my teachers that the mind is the most subtlest vibration of the body and the body is the grossest, almost physical vibration of the mind, but that there's no really no such thing as body and mind. There's two separate concepts. There's just a spectrum between body mind. Um, and when I heard this, I was like, fuck, this is the stuff I've been practicing. I just had no one else articulated so clearly for me. And the realization is when a word is in my head, I can bring that down into my body and find where it's vibrating in my body. Mm. And it's usually not just one word. It's usually like an expression or a concept that I'm looking to then bring through them through my mouth. 
and bring into a space that can land on, on other bodies. And the same thing can work in retrospect. It's like, sometimes I find when I'm training people and they get stuck, what should I say next? It's like, we've got to bring it into the body. We've got to find what's vibrating or what's stuck that wants to have expression. And that's when, when magic seems to happen, when the process of speaking is coming from a deeper place than what the person knows, which is just the aspect of mind. Mm. And I think the two, like when we cultivate the landscape where we can really bring magic is to kind of journey between the body and the mind. Like when we come in and drop some of these deeper vibrations, but then also bring it back out and set some more of the, whatever that is. I'm kind of waving my fingers through the yeah, air yeah. everyone that's listening. And not I talking. get what you mean, yeah. That's why I like doing, um, for anyone who's listening, just audio. That's why um, I definitely think that the video helps as well. Um, because, yeah, that's what we're trying to do a lot of the time. Hey, just use use our body. And I think that's a, a massive piece of it that um, I've learned from like my years of doing just sales and door-to-door sales and stuff like that and all kinds of sales is just like really using body language to, to get that across. And um, that's actually one of the biggest pieces. Initially, before I even did your course, we had a little chat and you said that all the videos are done standing up. And that was a huge piece for me because I didn't even think even – and, that, and that's the thing as well. Like even though all my experience in, in yoga and these other things and being so aware of how like posture affects, you know, your expression and physiology, I still didn't even think of doing my videos standing up. I do all my videos sitting down. So now I've experimented in, in doing those standing up and it's a different video. Like it's a completely different feel. So that's the thing as well. It's like, what's my intention? Am I like trying to like be a bit more, um, kind of approachable by leaning back and having a seated conversation like this or am I really trying to get your attention and stand up and um yeah it's like how do you get that to click with people as well like I guess the, the differences in, in how that works when you say with people you mean like with audiences students or more so like when I'm training other people I have to do this yeah both I, I meant more of training people up but I guess yeah but that was my next question as well um how do you notice if it's landing with people? Like, how do you, because this is an art and a science, but obviously we want to kind of observe how this is landing with people. Um, what are you, some kind of like uh, signposts that you notice that it's actually working both teaching people and like, training people how to do this and that it's landing with your audience? Mm. Uh, a part of it is switching and switching. We're going into some, you could call this esoteric. I don't think of it that way. Um, but it's like my presence can be inside my body and registering what's going on in here. And then I can also switch into the room and feel what the room's experiencing outside of me. And they're two uh, different places that I can be in. And th- that's partially how I'm reading a room. And then the second thing is I also got, got this particularly from teaching yoga is if I just let my body respond to the energy of the room, it's going to collect that information and it's going to show up in a very physical way. Then I can be like, oh, okay, this is what the room needs. I start feeling the room as if it is my own body. And for some people that this might be like, mm, what, what do you mean? Like if, if I bring it into the yoga example, which is a nice one again, like if we're in a warrior two, I will let my body collect the information of the room. And this happens like split second. And I let my body take the warrior two that's in the room. And I might find it's like, oh, my shoulders are a bit dropped. My knees kind of coming inwards as opposed to being over the ankle. And then I'll literally just speak what my body needs to do as a reflection of the room to come back into alignment. It's like, cool, let's drop our weight a bit through the knee, stack it on top of the ankle and really let your hands move out towards the edges of the room. 
and I'm literally just working on my own body and speaking what needs to happen here, but the words are landing in the other bodies of the room. And taking that into any kind of teaching environment, I'm like, <laughs> last year when I was writing um, the, the thesis on embodied teaching learning, I interviewed one of the students who was quite adept herself and she goes, it feels to me like you've done so much self-reflection in your life that when you're teaching, you're still self-reflecting at the same time as you're teaching. Mm. And you're able to communicate what's happening in your body to the rest of the room. And I was like, I, I didn't even have the cognitive awareness that that was something I was doing, but essentially that is like a very highly adept level of embodied speaking, teaching, facilitating. Mm. It's like to have the internal awareness and to be communicating it out at the same time. And on an energetic or magical level, if you will, it's like what's happening with the energy of the room is it's that's moving through people, through my body and back out again. We're making this um, torus or communication in the space that's yeah. very enlivening to everyone. I love that, bro. And and that's the thing as well. You're, you know how you said you, you just, when you found Harisha's work, like it was just like you thought this way, but he's just like, put names on it and like expand upon it. It's a very similar thing with the way that you break things down because I love systems and, um, and symbology and things like that. And, you know, even if you, we look at the chakra system, right, it's just able to take a whole spectrum of ideas, put it into bite-sized chunks so we can communicate with that as well. And, and that's the thing, what you said about you teaching a warrior two in the room, I've just noticed that I've actually done the same thing but you've just given me a whole new perspective on it because I just realized, because I don't know if you like, you know, this idea of the hive mind, there's actually a really good documentary mm -hmm. on it. And they did an, lots of different experiments, but one of them is the idea that the collective knows the answer, mm -hmm. right? But individually we can be far off. So they did like this experiment where they had a jar of jelly beans and I think there was like say 500 jelly beans in there. Um, but then some people would say, oh, say, say, say there was 5,000 jelly beans in there just to make this easier. So some people might say there's like 300 in there, right? So way off. Some people might say there's 20,000 in there. So way off. But then the more people they got, the closer mm. to the average answer was like usually about 10% off. So, but the more people we get in, the more closer to the answer. So the collective knows we have this innate knowing but it's how to tap into that. So what I just realized when you said about the warrior two is that that same works, like that's the intellectual guess, but there's the body guess. So like you, you're tuning into everyone's body. So the average for the whole room or the whole class, yeah. you just took that onto your body and got the average. And that would probably work for most people. Cause we're all, we can't please everyone. We're always looking for like the majority or something like that. Um, so yeah, I love the way that you've taken these ideas that, we might already do, but because we've given it almost a name and a concept, now we can like play with it more because it was so abstract before that I didn't know how to, what to do with it. But, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, what's your, what's your view on that of everything I just said? That's, I, I love what you're saying. And the, the piece there for me is it's like, when we say it's the average, it's like, my mind is sometimes like yeah, average, who cares? But what I'm really getting and in the way you relate it back to me is if you think of these things like frequencies and there's a frequency in the room where it's like everyone's missing um, in a yoga room, if we're using that example, but really this applies to everything. Like I do corporate training in exactly the same way. It's like I'm scanning the room for what's missing and then I'm bringing that into the room. And it's not just on a conscious level, it's on that embodied level. But let's say, because we are speaking about yoga for the time being, 
it's like if most of the room is missing that grounded presence in their body and the knee isn't stacked and we're not bringing that into the ground, what just means when we bring that one vibration through the space, it's like it clears out the room for so much more to happen. And there's much more possibility than to go into um, refinement or alignment within the pose, which wasn't there previously. Mm, yeah, I love that, man. And I'm, I'm curious to, to know certain techniques uh, that you use to help tune into that. Because, so for example, the analogy I use, right? So if we think of it as, as like, you know, like an MMA fighter or something like that, right? And we think of speaking as in the actual fight. So we, we go, you could learn just by going in fighting. You get hit, thrown around a lot, but you'll learn, right? Pretty quickly. But in a training area, we're taking these concepts, we're doing it in a safe environment. And I think people, like some, you know, you'll get the gung-ho people that just want to go and stand on stage and like mess up a bunch of times and learn from that and they'll be fine. But you also get the people who, if they mess up once on stage, it might scar them and they never want to get up again. So for the people who want to train, I guess, in a more like controlled environment, what might be some techniques that they can start to tune into those frequencies um, without actually having to put themselves out there too much? <laughs> You're really good, man. Um, I was listening to Tim Ferriss the other day and he was like, questions, when you want to learn and master something, there's most definitely someone in the world that's got something you want. And it was like the missing piece of how you get that from their head into your head is having a really good question. And you've got like fucking awesome questions. I'm like the stuff you're pulling out of me, no one's touched on before. So oh, I'm, you, just, I'm loving what you, I just been wanting to chat with you for a while. So now I'm just like, it's all for me, bro. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm, I've got a podcast launching soon. I'd love to, to play with this conversation. Like for me specifically around the teaching, facilitating, creating magic in that way. So I want to get you on my end as well. Yeah. And, awesome. and then <laughs> pick it the other way. Yeah. Um, that, that was unrelated to, to what you said. Can you give me like the, just a brief part of the question again? Yeah. So I guess, um, what are some controlled environment training techniques? Oh uh, yeah. Cool. That's the thing as well, without going into the, into the fight, like how can we train, in this controlled safe environment and techniques in a, yeah. Um, in a way that, uh, doesn't put a lot of, yeah, like undue pressure on us. Um, so one thing is working with people that do have mastery in the field. Like for me, when, when I'm training teachers, speakers, facilitators, especially people when they come to me for the first time and they think we're just going to sit there and chat and it's like, no, you're going to get up. You're going to start speaking now. There's no cue. Go for it then you know this, it's like the experience in their body is probably the same as what they would experience on stage. But it's safe because I'm not judging them. I'm just going to be present and help them unwind whatever's been stuck in the body. So that's, that's one level, like actually working with someone that can support you. And yes, that can be someone like me, but it could also be just getting together with another, another teacher, another facilitator in your field and being like, let's play, play out some of this stuff. Um, if you're doing it that way, be aware of like not getting into coaching each other too much. The, the second one, which I also quite often recommend to people though, is when you have some grasp and you want to explore, take it into a space where you're not going to burn your own audience, mm. where you're not experimenting on, on people who you have ongoing relationships with. And what I mean by that is there's places like open mics. You can play at an open mic um, and you can play with these same concepts by reciting poetry. And by reciting poetry, I don't just mean memorizing and putting it out there. It can be very much even creating poetry in the moment. 
but just how does how is the room feeling as I land this? And if I was to speak to this room specifically, how do some of those ideas that I had before I get on stage, how, what, how do they change form to be delivered into this room? And I'm going to add one more kind of um, thing on top of this. This is really what your question touched. And I was like, oh, I've never gone into this before. Um, the stuff that's happening in our own head, the background noise is what's stopping us from being in this deeper level of connection. And to give a really brief example, years and years ago, I taught this um, yin yoga class before stepping in. I was, I was feeling pretty depressed. I was like, I don't really want to be teaching now. I'm going to do it anyway, but I didn't really want to be in the room. Mm. Like my vibration felt very, um, you know, matter was moving very slowly inside me. And at some point in, within teaching this class, I was like, I just need to meet this. Like, I, I don't want to be fighting it anymore. And I just let it be there. I was like, this part of me that's in the space now, it doesn't have to change. I don't have to be any different. And I just let that conditioning move out of my mind into the space. Um, and this woman came up to me after the class and she's like, I experienced something in that class. And her English wasn't very good. She was an international student. She's like, I just experienced something I've never felt before. She's like, on the inhale and the exhale, I actually felt like I stopped breathing. It's like I would be so long and deep in that space that everything would disappear. And then the breath would come again and I'd be like, oh, I'm here. And then I would disappear again. And she's like, this kept going on for ages and ages. And I was like, there's no scientific evidence for this, but there is another, another teacher that relates a lot of it to Rupert Sheldrake's work. It's this sense in me opening that part of myself that was holding the room in a certain kind of matrix. Like the moment I dissolved that, the room was given more permission to expand as well. Mm. And she goes to me, what did you do? How do I do that again? I'm like, it's, it's not in the words. Like I can't recreate that experience for you again, but you were in a place and I was in a place where something between us wanted to meet and to open. Mm. Um, and also while, while we're going on this, I've had people like come to me and be like, you know, I want to get into speaking and, and really getting on more stages, but I don't have those opportunities at the moment. And I reflect back. I'm like a lot of the stuff I'm teaching people to do on stages and what I've done on stages, I've learned through safe environments, like teaching yoga and meditation where, you know, you don't have hundreds of people projecting their stuff at you. You're usually in a safe environment, predominantly students, you know, where you can drop yourself a little bit deeper and begin to explore what's in the field. And uh, this goes same for like fitness instructors, for example. It's like, you're not wasting your time being in these environments. This is all research. And it's just about having the understanding of how far you can take the container as well. Yeah. And yeah, coming back to like the idea of teaching yoga and stuff as well, because I noticed that especially if I'm teaching stuff that is, is like very new and makes me a bit nervous, I would always just start with something I'm familiar with to get me into that flow state. So like I would always just start off the first five minutes of every class with the same thing and it would just be dropping people into their body and into their breath because I, I could do that without thinking. And then once, like you said, once I got into that, into my body and I spoke from my body and I got my mind out of the way, then the rest kind of flowed mm. a lot um, a lot more quickly. Like, do you have something that you do in, in that sort of aspect as well? Similar? Yeah, very similar. Body and breath is usually my go-to. And I see it as getting everyone on the same page. It's like when everyone comes in projecting their own um, life into the space, it's like, it's too much. Like no one can really work in that kind of environment. So the first point it's cool. It's just recenter. So we're all meeting from the same place. And there's, um, 
Oh God, I, I quoted this guy in the thesis I wrote, but it was a nice perspective because it was one of those moments, like we said before, I was like, oh, I've been doing this for a long time, but he just articulated it for me into words. And he talked about this idea that presence isn't an individual thing. Mm. It's a shared thing. And I've, I've had yoga teacher friends that are like, you know, I'll, they'll religiously meditate 15 minutes before they start a class. And my experience is like, if I bring the group into presence, they pull me into presence. And it's not them and I, it's like we're both coming into presence together. And yeah, it was quite a new idea to me that, or a new way of articulating a similar concept, that presence is a shared phenomenon. It's a shared experience. Yeah, it, it just, just happened again, bro. This is, this is awesome because I've had the same experience, but I've never really like articulated that way. And I'll come back to why, why I think that's a really good thing. But my experience is it, right? So I remember being in Bali and this teacher obviously had been, I reckon she'd been meditating for like an hour before she taught the class. She was just super in, in her zone and just kind of, and I, I arrived and I was in a hurry. I couldn't find the studio. I like, I was flustered. It was hot and I got there and I was really like flustered. And then she's like, all right, everybody, let's all drop in. And I, like, if I'd been meditating before that, I would have like easily been able to relate. But that's the thing as well. I think, finding the average of what the where the room's at and then bringing it where you want to go. Whereas like I was over this side of the spectrum, I was like, my nervous system was like, where she was super Zen. So I just couldn't relate. Like she was obviously trying to bring me to where she was at, but she should have met me here. Mm. And then like at the average and then brought everyone here. So that way if she met in the average, she's kind of like still down to earth, but also pretty Zen. She would have brought me in as well as the other people. And then cool. Now let's go over where I want to be. Um, so like I've experienced that concept both as a student, as a teacher, but I've never heard it articulated like that, which is, which is awesome. I think that's like the key, man. What I, I like about you, what you do is you articulate it because like we need to have words and, um, like language around these concepts in order again, to play with it. Like, um, I don't know if you've read 1984 by George. Yeah. you know how he, um, there's a new speech. So like for anyone who hasn't read it, the idea is that they reduce the, lang- the English language to where they can't even say things are bad. Um, they can't even say, like, they don't have words for oppression um, and, and things like that. So if we can't, we c- if we don't have the words for it, we can't even often dream the concept, right? Yeah. Um, so, and that's the thing, we're pulling these feelings from, like, the ether or where- wherever you- in your body, but if we can't put language around them, then they disappear and we can't hold on to them because we can't conceptualize them. So the language can be like words, but it also be symbols and concepts. Because even in your course, you've used like triangles and different like things like that and um, ideas. And yeah, so like, yeah, what, what's your point of view on really like bringing that across to like as, as far as encouraging people's learning styles and stuff like that? Um, what we're just saying there is like, it's paramount. And one of the things I've been noticing and journeying this myself, I'm like, the things I'm articulating, I've really, they're not there. And I wish they were because I would have loved to learn this stuff. Um, and the, the beautiful thing is it's like, you look at something like Sanskrit or Hebrew and in these languages, because there has been such an entwining between the spiritual and the material, there's a lot finer distinction with articulating some of these things. Whereas in English, we don't have that. Like you look at where English is, is exceptional. It's like, you know, I don't know, business and legalities and things like that. That's where, where they, there's a lot of refinement in the language. I was speaking to someone that's from um, 
one of the Nordic countries and they were like, and I, I can't remember what we're speaking about. It was a very common word in English. They were like, oh, we don't have, the, we don't have that. But we have like 18 words for sweaters. Because, <laughs> you know, they all love hiking and going outdoors. So there's so many distinctions in that world. But in this other world, it's like, no, that just doesn't exist. Um, and that whole idea is fascinating to me. It, it's the whole thing. I, I think it's a bit of a... a debunked concept but how Eskimos have all these different words for snow um, and they do have far more distinctions than we might have and I think when we start articulating we can start pointing it and recreating it and making it a, an available part of the human experience mm. but without the words it's almost like it just doesn't exist yeah yeah and I guess that's the thing it, it starts off as like maybe one word for this concept and then we find the subtleties for it and then we need more words around that and then we find more subtleties and, it, and we see this a lot in yoga the subtle bodies you know like that and that's why we start off with, with you know the postures with asana because it's like the most obvious thing and then we can find the subtleties but if you try to explain that for, to someone and that's why yeah I really like progression and systems because yeah there is a like a progressive um, like even in tantra it's like there's a they do it in a certain sequence because it, you know, that's, that's often how we learn, but often it's also just allowing space for that, that people learn in different ways. Like for example, with uh, teaching meditation, I kind of teach it as like a circle, not as it's hard because I know there's no goal of meditation, but it's like, this is kind of where we're trying to go. And then there's different entries and exits because I've seen like sequences of meditations where it's like, all right, you do number one, and then number two, number three, number four. Then a different lineage just say, well, you start with number three and then you go to number one and then you go to number four and then you go to number two. Um, yep. Everyone has different ideas and stuff as well. And and do you think that's really important to touch on as well that um, both how to, how to teach people how to do this, but also how the audience will receive it as well. Like how do you, how do you kind of fit that in as well? Hmm. Some good question there. So one, one interesting thing here is when we use the word learning styles, usually we think of that like, you know, audio, visual, all that kind of stuff. Um, I've actually come across studies that debunk that and say that learning styles don't really exist. And I've also spoken to teachers and I especially remember when I was in my studies, I was with two primary school teachers and they're like, yeah, we've read those studies, but when you step into a classroom, you'll see it's a very different experience. Okay. <laughs> and it's this idea between, you know, what's actually happening. Um, I feel there's a necessity to meet people where they're at and it's that sense of meeting the vibration or the state of the room so that it can be opened to, to allow new information in. Um, and then it's more like, uh, it's like my experience in my body is, is what I'm offering landing in people's bodies. And if not, the question I'm asking in the back of my mind is how do I let this land for them? Mm. How do I let this information become their information? And sometimes like that's when what we call learning styles might come into it. But I'm not even thinking of it as learning styles. I'm not thinking, am I checking off all these boxes? I'm tracking how is this moving? Is it landing and are they receiving it? Can I see this information coming back through their eyes into my eyes? Mm. But it's pre-verbal. Like I'm not, I'm not actually thinking, oh, I better check that person's eyes out. What's going on in there? Um, and if not, it's like, cool. Okay, where do we go then? Do we bring a demonstration into it? Do I demonstrate? Do I get someone else to demonstrate? Do I get the students to look at each other and see, can you see this concept working? Mm. Do we take it to diagrams? 
but in a sense, the form is secondary to the relational experience in the room. Yeah, definitely. What's, what's your vibe around this? Yeah, well, I think it's coming back to what you what we talked about right at the start was the intention behind it, not necessarily the expression of it. And um, and that's why I think like all different magical systems, like I think we should bring magic back into like learning because the idea behind it, because people take it too literally, right? So people see like the chakra system and they're like, some people think that we literally, and uh, you know, that might be some belief systems that we literally have like these glowing orbs within us in, in some shape or form. But if you look at that as just an example of a symbolic system, right? So instead of having to like remember everything about, um, you know, the root chakra, like as in like what it represents and all the different things around it. So you could like, there could be books and books and books written about it. Right. But instead you condense all that into a symbolic system, which like offers all those learning styles, right? So you've got the visual, so you can like envision the actual symbol of it or the color, at least. There's, you've got the different chants for each one. So, you know, you might just say lum and so you've got the vocal sound of it. You've got, um, yeah, you've got like all the different learning styles of kinesthetics, so you can play with it in movement and postures and stuff like that. And so you're almost like downloading all that information into that concept. So then all you have to do is think of the feeling like either by summing it through sound or visuals and stuff like that. And then you've got like a whole library in there. And I think that's why like symbolic system work really well. It's like, Hey, this is the concept. We're just going to put it all in this like good looking container and you can summon out all that knowledge either from tuning into it this way and this way and this way. And I think it, from what I understand, that's what you're attempting to do. Give people these concepts and install them in different symbolic ways into their body. And then they can tap into it when they want, you know, instead of having notes of this is like how to, like, you know, a whole book when you stand on stage going, oh, I'm looking for the page of, like, what happens when I, I, like, get this kind of person in my audience. You just feel into the concept and then all the knowledge is there waiting for you. I hope that makes sense. Mm. I feel like I wanted to Yeah, it. it does. It's powerful. There's two things that I'm going to respond to in what you said. Um, one of them is, like, how maybe skewed our understanding of the chakras is in the West. And Harish, again, has a beautiful article on this. I might even send him this interview to have a listen to. Um, where, where the way we relate to chakras in the West is prescriptive. So it's descriptive, not prescriptive. And the way they're referred to it in more of the text is more prescriptive. So uh, for, uh, yeah, prescriptive, not descriptive. So for example, um, the way they've been laid out in the West is like this chakra means this, this is the, this is the vibration, this is the color, this is the essential oil, this is the crystal, all that kind of stuff. And him being a historian, he actually goes, a lot of this has just come, it's like Western thoughts and theories that have been laid onto what's actually there. Mm -hmm. And even the vibrations that we use for something like the root chakra, Lam, Lam doesn't correspond to the root chakra, Lam corresponds to the earth element. Mm, Interesting. And the way the, the the chakras were used in more traditional Tantra was like you were laying sounds and deities into these different centers of the body. So it was much more of an alchemical process in my words. So you could take Lam and put the earth element in the heart mm-hmm. and to notice the vibration of that. So it actually opens up for me what we're, what we're calling here the magical field to be able to play and create as opposed to being told this is the way it is and this is what you should do. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there was very specific practices that they were doing traditionally, but it's also opened me up to like, okay, what if I, what if I bring the earth element into my 
crown chakra and how does that change my experience? And what if I bring the fire element into my base chakra mm. as opposed to being told this one, this one goes where? And the second thing, which for me is also really exciting is um, years ago, I had a, a couple of friends that were running an anger workshop and really teaching people how to move and relate to the energy of anger without any of the concepts of how we think about anger. Mm. And they asked me to come and facilitate some embodiment practices around that. And the first morning she goes to me, you know, I know in, in Chinese medicine, they relate to anger as being in the liver. I think, um, did, did you want to do something around that? And I was like, yeah, sure. I did a bit of research. Um, I was like, Chinese medicine isn't my thing, but I can definitely drop into my liver and create a practice out of that. Yeah. And we did this movement practice and a lot of anger moved through the room, just, just doing that. And I was speaking to them afterwards and she's like, yeah, it, even though that's the Chinese system in the system we use, we say anger lives in the bones. And the following morning I was like, cool, let's do that. Let's, let's go into the bones and drive the anger out of the bones or let them move through the body. And it worked just as well. And a part of me stepped back and I was like, Jesus, the subtle body is willing to rearrange itself according to the concepts and maps we impose on it. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. That's Which, yeah, and and this is like a, I feel like this is a whole another conversation as well because and it comes back to I guess my question around like what what is the difference between the intention and the actual like the objective uh, like essence of this thing and you know like crystals for an example some people believe that the like crystal has an innate essence um, that you can tap into or is it that we just think that way and so it's going to and so what if we told someone that this crystal does this and this does this but really they're the opposite but then they work so it's like the placebo effect coming in and um yeah because the chakra system i'm not as familiar with like i've been really delving into it the last probably like three to five years but before that um i was really interested in the runes i still am but so the runes like i i can feel really well. Mm. I, I definitely resonate a lot more with what you're saying when it comes to the runes, because I'm so much more familiar with them. Um, and yeah, they just are concepts, but I, I might view a rune completely different to what the way somebody does. But I guess what I'm interested in is again, that hive mind. And that's why when I teach a, a workshop on the runes, I say, this is how I perceive it. This is what this book says, but what do you think? And trying to get, find the mm. average of, of, and so I've just been keeping track, running lots of workshops on runes, getting people to meditate on them. And I've been keeping track on what each person, both from someone who's been working with runes for years and someone who's never heard of a rune before, because both have insight into it, right? Sometimes like, because you've got a mastery in a certain thing, it can get in the way of like your just natural feelings towards that thing. So. Yeah, exactly. Oh God, you just reminded me. Um, the, the name is not coming to me, but. Oh, I think it's Christopher Bash or Bache or Christopher M. Bache. I'll have to look it up if you want it in the show notes later. Yeah. Um, but he, he was a, he, I think he still is a university professor who used to teach comparative religion. And he's the one I mentioned earlier that talks about Rupert Sheldrake and the fields that happen within um, learning environments. And one of the things he talked about is he noticed after students would come through uh, a certain unit that he was offering, it's like the first year compared to the third or the fourth year, it took them a lot longer to get a concept. Whereas as the, as the unit went on, it's like students' capacities to, to get the information and to make it their own and to move on with it was a lot quicker. And he synthesized that a part of this is because 
the unit itself began to, to carry a field and all the students that had come before were part of creating that field. Mm. And because of that, he didn't have to put as much time and energy teaching some of the concepts that took him a lot of time earlier. It's like the field was alive itself. Um, mm. And when we look at something like runes or any of these traditions, it's like there's a sense of energy that's vibrating, that's being created that holds that, that field together in, in my experience. It's like almost a platform or a blueprint on which other, other things can happen so we don't have to spend as much time going into all the details. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like we could um, go on a few really good tangents here. Because, um, yeah, that's the thing. I, I'm, I really like immersion. Um, and I think, you know, immersing yourself in every aspect of that can really help to see the big picture. And I think when we only delve into the tip of certain things, we miss the big picture and, like, how this relates to a lot of other things because we, we generally focus on what we need right now. So it's just like, I want to learn this because of this. I want to learn this because of this. But then we we miss out on how that relates to everything else and we might overlap or double up and um, yeah. And that's why I like mythological frameworks and um, yeah, just seeing how it fits into the big picture. Mm. But I mean, nice. and a lot, go on. What were you going to say? No, you, you go on. Uh, we might be going on a different topic now um, and we've probably only got about 10 minutes left. Um, but yeah, I just, it was something I wanted to ask you as well um, that because we are delving into Tantra and like the ideas of traditional Tantra and um, I guess, what is your perspective on what is Neo-Tantra and like how that evolved? And cause I, uh, I was watching a course by Rod Stryker and he said, um, he had a little uh, part of the course that said, um, Tantra has become synonymous with, I just threw this all together. Um, yeah, and so, like, a lot of people just say, you know, he's, like, saying, oh, you, you know, I'll just get some massage and some essential oils and a little bit of this and I'm going to do some Reiki and then I'm going to do this and that's Tantra because it's just, like, and that's what people are, like, and it almost, like, hit home because I was, like, it's, yeah, it is, it is happening. Like, people kind of just pull it all under, but I guess that's Neo-Tantra. But for someone who has no idea what the difference between Tantra and, and Neo-Tantra is or, like, you know, the, you know, kind of, like, New Age sexuality movement and all that sort of stuff, like, I guess within a five to 10 minute framework, how would you explain that? Or we needed another podcast for that. <laughs> no, it's, it's a nice, so I'd offer a, a couple of things. Um, firstly, even though Tantra has been my predominant journey for the last, you know, 10, probably up to 15 years now, um, upon meeting Harish, I recognized how little I knew. And Harish Christopher Wallace, he's both a scholar and a practitioner. He reads, writes, translates Sanskrit, and he's been, uh, you know, an avid meditation practitioner within different tantric lineages for a lot of his life. So upon meeting him, I was like, Jesus, 10 years in this world, I still know nothing. Mm. And sitting down with him and listening to his wisdom, it's a bit like that. So for anyone that's really, like, curious, maybe you should get Harish on the show. Um, oh, man, if you to connect, I would absolutely... <laughs> Uh, but a brief synopsis on my end. Um, the only similarity Tantra and Neo-Tantra have is in the word, word itself. Like Neo-Tantra is predominantly a sacred sexuality, which would be a better word for it. It comes from California in 1960s. Um, you know, that, that, that's a bit about it. Tantra is more focused, like 
most of the practices are meditation based and most of the practices are solo practices. Whereas Neo Tantra, they're not, everything's pretty much with a partner. And the difference in the goal, I think with Neo Tantra is more like having more fulfilling sexuality and having spiritual sexuality, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with, but it's more about cool. Let's, let's call it spiritual sexuality as opposed to relating it to a lineage that's thousands of years old and, Although there is, it includes sexuality as part of the spiritual path, which many um, traditions don't, it wasn't the focus of it either. The focus was really about creating a living relationship with all of life. Mm. And where a lot of the traditions that have come before Tantra were about, um, I'm not this and I'm not that, and kind of stripping the self away from the world to achieve liberation, Tantra came along and said, um, I am everything. And for relating to everything, I can experience the fullness of my own being. Mm. Yeah, I would love to uh, actually do another podcast and dive into this a lot more. Um, and the idea, I guess, of sexuality, especially, um, and it's actually quite rare to find um, male yoga teachers, um, in my experience anyway. Um, it's a very female-dominated industry. And it's, yeah, it would be nice to actually chat the idea behind it. And, um, yeah, and especially like how se- sexuality fits into yoga because it, you know, it, it is a part of the whole spectrum of yoga, especially in Tantra, but it's often kind of put off to the side just because our society doesn't really want to talk about it as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And even just being a, um, a male yoga teacher, I feel like I've had to, and maybe I'm overcompensating, but I didn't want to appear um, like sexual at all as well, because it, you know, there's a lot of like bad history of, um, of yoga teachers kind of taking advantage of, of situation. It's been really unfortunate that that's happened, but it's um, also just, create some clarity around what can happen. Um, so, yeah. So I think that it'd be really important to just talk about, yeah, men's sexuality in general, but yeah, I think, and also how um, sexuality fits into um, yoga in general as well. Mm. These, these topics are very, very dear for me as well. Um, and I feel a part of like, yes, I've also done a lot of suppressing of my sexuality um, probably to keep myself and other people safe, but it was like, it was, unconscious it was always just there like I grew up with my sexuality suppressed and I feel for me there's a deep deep desire to bring this conversation out of the shadows and out of the boot to like let's actually start talking about this because living without our sexuality isn't really beneficial for anyone and what it means I was speaking on a stage recently and it was it was uh, the general consensus was around sexuality um and someone from the audience at the end asked, well, what, what do you see 30 years from now to us like as a panel of speakers? And a few of the speakers shared their insights for what's possible and how the world's going to change and all that. And I was like, you know what, what if nothing fucking changes? I'm like, what I learned in sex ed 20 something years ago and what students are being taught now. I'm like, I can't verify this. I haven't looked into it, but I'm pretty sure it hasn't changed that, that much. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're having conversations around the wheel of the consent I don't feel they're having conversations about what it means to speak about desires and really own who we are sexually. And the reason for this is like society is not there yet. There's a small subculture of people that have taken it upon themselves to really explore and journey with this work and bring, bring articulation, which is what we said before, like develop language around how do we communicate around this to create safety and consent um, and is honoring of everyone involved. But that still hasn't landed or even the importance for that hasn't landed in the mainstream. Mm. Um, and there's a sadness there for me. It's like, you know, like when are we going to have that conversation? When are we going to stop pretending that 
sex is taboo. It's like everyone's having it, guys. It's it's like we can talk about this and it's safe, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's like these, they've been put on other ends of the spectrum. So like the spirituality and then sexuality and like they're complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, whereas like a lot of the, yeah, traditional views on that is not the case at all. It's the complete opposite. Um, so yeah, it's it's yeah, I'd love to have a proper chat about that because I think as well that's almost what I'm looking at doing with House of Majors, just trying to, you know, create this kind of core environment that offers a lot of um, different views on it and, yeah, and linking them. So, you know, someone who might be onto this, into this might be completely opposed to this viewpoint, but yet it's all in the same environment. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting and in, in trying to find the middle ground and link. And that's the thing as well because, you know, like I get the same sort of thing. I um, So, like, I don't eat meat. I'm, my, I'm primarily vegan and I, I remember having a moment like a year ago being like, wow, I think the whole world is pretty much nearly vegan now. And then I, I went and visited like, um, you know, my family in Brisbane in like a kind of like south, south southern suburb. And then I realized around there, there's nothing around. Like you kind of like see what's around you, right? And I think this, this happens a lot in different ideas, but we live in a bit of a bubble sometimes. So I'm really interested in uh, the people who aren't obviously diving into this stuff, how, how we can bridge that across. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. really interested in, in bridging these things. Um, yeah, me too. That, you know, that kind of saying, preaching to the converted, a lot of the time I see that in um, like vegan activism, they're just telling more vegans that they should be vegan. <laughs> or they're, like, they're, they're attacking the vegetarians for not being vegan. Yeah, yeah. And even in like, um, you know, these kind of, uh, well, I think there's like enlightenment in the bedroom and stuff like that and other kind of, places where we're trying to promote this kind of conscious sexuality and just like stuff in general. But a lot of the time, the people who go to them are already interested in it. Um, so it's like, how do we bring that across to people who might not feel comfortable even going to like some, some kind of event like that. Um, so yeah, there's lots of, yeah, that's chat. a big, big, big passion for mine. And I think this relates, we're speaking before about how sometimes you have um, master teachers that, that aren't bringing their work into the mainstream. And I'm like, I get it. And I can see, I'm not, not saying this is true for anyone else, but I'm like, I can see it for myself how it's so safe for me to hang out in spiritual conscious community, just teaching how to speak. And how much more I'm myself when I go to the mainstream. And this is one thing I see. So some people might be amazing facilitators and might be amazing on camera, but you put them in front of an audience to speak and you'll just see their body kind of shrink up and I, I had this quite quite recently. Someone was like, hey, can you teach me to speak like this person? And they sent me a few videos of this person speaking to camera. And I was like, cool, let me, let me see when they're on a stage. And they showed me a, vision, a, a thing of this person on stage and their body was all closed up and the microphone was kind of like this and they didn't move. And I was like, this is the difference. It's easy when you're singing to your own choir, you can just be yourself. Mm. The difference between when you go on a stage is that you're bringing this message to people that might have no context about what it is you're bringing. And unconsciously, like in the field, what happens is there's a lot more judgment. And can I open up to wearing the projections of others to, um, to let the field dissolve and open them up to a new way of being and experiencing whether it's magic or yoga or meditation or sexuality in a new way. Mm. And that, that kind of means weaving through some of the concepts they've held. Like how can I give them the essence of this transmission in a way that doesn't get stuck in the way they're relating to the words? Definitely. And yeah, and I think it's just changing the lens around uh, like that fear and resistance because like even like our, our muscles, right, we can't grow without resistance. So like if we, if we have a strong belief or we have a strong practice, 
going out there into the world and having to justify it and explain it and actually articulate it um, is a big learning experience. I remember the first time I started, tried to talk about runes, what runes were to someone. Like I knew in my body, I was like, I know exactly what runes are. As soon as I opened my mouth, I was like, I have no fucking idea what runes are um, to like be able to explain. And it's changed my whole practice now because um, I realized that I was just stuck in old patterns. And yeah, I think if we can see res the, the resistance and that having to not justify it, but having to explain things in different ways, it just evolves our whole view and experience of it. And I think if we can change people's lens around, oh, I have to get up on stage and like give a talk on this thing that I love, but it's going to ruin my love for it because now I have to like, it's not, but it's bringing it down, right? It's bringing it into reality. It's making it real. And um, yeah. And, and honestly, I think that's, I don't know if you've experienced this, but that's the hardest part like of I've had and, and teaching other people to do similar things is like, how do you get them to overcome that resistance and not just, and just like get them out of their, their comfort zone of, um, I've spent for so long. So. Mm. For me, the, the metaphor that's been with me for a long time. And sometimes people ask me like, you know, what kind of rooms are your favorite to speak to? And I was like, I don't have a favorite. I love the process of, of the way the metaphor shows up is it's a bit like a safe. And when people step up, uh, step into a room that there's, you know, they're carrying their own beliefs and projections, conscious and unconscious. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's a bit like, can I listen as I'm turning the safe, which in this example is saying words, can I listen to the creaks and the crones going on inside the safe to be able to let it open up and come into a, a relational field, like come into a sense of connection with each other? because that's when that transmission can begin to happen. And as long as we're discussing ideas on the surface, that's like, it's mental masturbation for lack of better words. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, for me, it's just seeing like the experiences, like leveling up, kind of getting experience rather than actually looking for a goal. It's, it's all about the experience as well as the achievement from the crowd. So mm. So do you want to just like touch on what people would uh, experience um, both from doing, uh, you know, obviously working with you one-on-one, -on -one, but um, I guess more specifically around um, what you're sharing on House of Mages. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. So for House of Mages, what I'm sharing is the Metaphere course and Metaphere is essentially using fear to catapult us into aliveness or even to, to sliver into aliveness. Um, this is it's what we started touching on at the start of this podcast. And really, if you want more of a context, my TEDx talk is a good place to go. But for me, fear became the portal or the threshold to whatever you want to call that God, consciousness, the universe, um, the bliss of my own being. It was like the easiest way to go from the mind into, into an expanded state. And it's not for everyone. If you like... Um, if you like taking slow steps through life, this, this isn't the way I was hungry and I just wanted more. And this presented its, itself as a way to find rapid growth and connection in a very quick way. And I say to people like, you know, if you want to lean into working with Metaphia, it can be life-changing very quickly. And the scary thing is your life will change. Like you might find yourself having conversations you haven't had before, mm -hmm. which is scary and exciting at the same time. If, you're, if your relationship to life is one where you want to feel alive and you want to be leaning into that, like it is for me, um, who I am and who I become has to be secondary in the process. Like I can't be like, yes, I need safety, but I can't be too precious about my ego. So it's really for those people that, that feel a burning desire to go beyond their habitual patterns and ways of being in the world. Awesome.
Um, for me, on on an on an extended topic out of that is what I teach people is speaking, teaching, facilitation, and really doing it in an embodied, enlivening way. So the message that's inside you is landing for other people, and they're taking action, as opposed to just speaking to a room, which is what ninety eight percent of other speaking courses teach out there. They teach you how to be robotic on stage. Whereas my jam is like, let's create enlightenment and let's let that move through you so you can move and touch other people. And the, the two are very similar. Like the, everyone's heard that survey uh, speaking. Most people would rather die than have to speak on stage or whatever it is. Yeah. Like speaking is the biggest access point for fear because you're letting yourself be revealed and fully seen. Mm. So even if speaking is something you might be considering, Metafear is a good place to start because the two work really well together. Cool. And I think, yeah, that's a really good show of how important communication is like on a global scale. If that's everyone's number one fear is to be misunderstood, right? Mm. It shows like how important it is both like as a self-development level, but also to, to share what you're wanting to get out, sharing your message. It, it's essentially most people's most important thing in the world. So um, it's, it's pretty silly to not, work on it and develop it to be honest yeah like it should be a, uh, yeah, a lot of people's priority even just on a like self-development level for me essentially i'm noticing my path is speaking teaching facilitating like that's the the crux of my spirituality and it's not even about learning the skill like for me when people talk about meditation it's like you're not learning to meditate you're learning how to have a relationship with life the meditation technique it's just like a crutch and I, that it's not a crutch, but it's essentially a crutch to get you to relate directly to life. Mm. And we need this holding thing so we can get the experience of that. And for me, teaching people the embodiment and enlivenment of, of speaking or facilitating teaching, whatever, that itself is the path. And what you're getting from it is who you become as you embrace more of your innate power and presence. The speaking side, it's like, that's just what happens as a result of you, you becoming more whole. Mm. Boom. I think that's a pretty good place to leave it, brother. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, bro. This was such a pleasure. Really um, enjoyed this. And yeah, let's, let's do it again on my podcast. Yeah, definitely, bro. And I think we've got some um, more topics I'd like to cover on a future podcast here at House of Majors as well. So yeah, thank you, brother. So yeah, everyone can find Miroslav's course on House of Majors. Um, and is there any other links that you'd want to drop if anyone else wants to find more of what you do? Yeah, so my website is miroslavp.com, M-I-R-O-S-L-A-V-P. Um, you can connect on Facebook. That's the most active social media channel I have. And then I've also got a group called The World Stage, The Art of Speaking, Teaching and Facilitating. So if this is something you're interested in cultivating and being a part of the conversation, you can just join us in the group. Awesome. And um, if that's too much for everyone to remember, I'll put all the links to Miroslav's work on the House of Majors profile as well under his name. Perfect. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being a part of this episode of Make Yoga Magic Again, the House of Majors podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arulian Cumming. A massive thank you to Miroslav Petrovich for being my guest for this episode. 
The House of Mages is an online school of yoga, tantra, and the magical arts. We run yoga teacher training and have a membership platform that gives you access to an extensive curriculum in developing your magical abilities with some of the best teachers in the world on various esoteric arts. Miroslav Petrovic is one of those teachers who will not only be sharing his course Metaphere and possibly others in the future on the platform, but he'll also be one of my co-teachers on the House of Mages yoga teacher training program thank you again for listening if this podcast has resonated with you we'd love it if you shared it with anyone who might enjoy it as well as you did and i will see you next time make yoga magic again